All right, we're in Matthew 21, going verse by verse. There's so much in this today. I didn't realize, I've read it probably dozens of times in my Christian life, but in preparing for this morning, just didn't realize how many little nuggets and, and teachings are in here. So um, we're going to look at context, we're going to look at history, and just read. We'll see how far we get, but I'm going to uh, attempt to get through the, verse, the 22 verses and then we'll pick up, you know, next week we'll finish up chapter 21 of Matthew. So if you want to turn there, I've got uh, New American Standard, but I will read from the New King James because I, I understand that's what I think most of you have. So we're talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. T Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set, uh, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from palm trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out, out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you, if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So the final week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth began with a celebration. 
jubilation, triumph, uh, but it wouldn't last, as we know, because it was not what the people expected, most of the people. The crowd shouting, Hosanna, would cry out, crucify him, five days later. They must have believed that Jesus came to assert his royal authority and reign over Israel and the other nations, um, but there could be no kingdom without the cross. That had to be accomplished first. So the crowds didn't understand the specifics of all this and of what the prophets had prophesied and how Christ had to be rejected and suffer before he entered his glory. Jesus told the disciples many, many times in detail what he was about to go through. But every move the Lord made in this world was according to prophecy and obedience to his Father's will. So picture the scene, what we just read. The noise, the excitement, uh, the, the road blanketed with coats and palm branches along the path Jesus chose, leading into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, a very significant gate, by the way. Most of the people heard of his miracles. These miracles this, this man did, he had to be the Messiah. He did things that no other person had ever, they had never heard of such miracles that Jesus did. So they wanted to claim him as their rightful king. They wanted him to take up his kingship right then and there. Um, so all four Gospels take note of this important event when Christ rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting, I don't know how many, I would say a, a dozen, maybe a dozen events that all four Gospel writers, for whatever reason, we have to trust that it's Holy Spirit-led because the, the Word of God is inspired. For whatever reason, all four writers wrote about a handful of things, and this is one of them. So it's very interesting. Um, and also another thing, they walked on foot everywhere. And if you look at the three years of Jesus' life, the radius of the area that they moved around uh, doing ministry, this is the only time we ever hear him riding on a donkey. They walked by foot everywhere. Um, but here in his preparation to present himself as an offering to God, a perfect sacrifice for our sins, he enters the city riding on a donkey's colt. And he allows the people to worship him for the very first time. How many times did he say when he healed someone, now, you know, don't tell anyone who I am. And I'll parenthetically insert, yet. In other words, my time has not yet come. So in three years of ministry, he, he never allowed someone to worship him and, and received it and commended them for it. But this was significant. Um, if you read the book of Daniel, chapter 9, this is part of the prophetic 70 weeks in the book of Daniel, scholars say the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was predicted, it was um, on Sunday 9 Nisan, A.D. 30, exactly 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes, and it was mentioned in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. This is one of the rare cases where something was predicted and it happened exactly to the day. So that's Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Very significant when the Messiah's arrival. So also, uh, Zechariah 9.9, which we read, which uh, Matthew quotes, um, it was also predicted that the king would come into the royal city this way. He quotes Zechariah, and the scene we're studying today is, is just one of many, many prophecies. There it is, uh, what we just read from Zechariah. Um, I want to take... A quick um, 
break from Matthew 21, and if you would turn to John chapter 12, hold your place in Matthew 21, of course, it's what we're in for most of the day today. John 12, this is in context now. Whenever uh, you're reading, especially in the Gospels, a good question to ask is, what happened right before this? What happened immediately before or just before this? So John 12, days earlier, Jesus spent time with Lazarus, Mary and Martha, now let's go to verses 1 and 2. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead. Remember? Whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him supper. Just something very, you know, just something very natural and normal. The guys were hungry. So they went over to Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They had supper. Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Why was this so significant? Well, we know um, that Jesus raised him from the dead. But Mary, this is another thing that Mary did. Mary anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. Um, and Jesus responded to Judas, particularly, who said, why this waste of this expensive perfume? If I remember right, one of the other Gospels says it was a year's worth of wages that she had this bottle or vial of perfume that she anointed Jesus' feet as they were reclining at the table. And uh, Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. So I wonder, because the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, I wonder in Mary's act of devotion, what did she know? And when did she know it? It seemed to me when someone anoints you and Jesus said, she, this is what she did. She kept this for the day of my burial. So in the next coming days, he would be crucified and placed into the tomb. So the day before Passover, this was maybe the day before, the night before now, they're having supper. Another crowd was getting all stirred up. This time, not in Jerusalem, this time at Bethany, as we're reading in John 12. And verses 9 through 11 says this, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, Jesus. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Think about this now. Not only were people masses going to him, we've got to see this guy. He was dead four days. And so there, he was like a spectacle. Wow, it's amazing you're alive. Rather than give God glory for truly an, a miracle, an act of divinity, an amazing sign, they said, all right, we're going to have to kill him too. <laughs> we're going to kill Jesus. Now we've got to take care of Lazarus. Because because of him, they're going to believe in Jesus. But this was the mentality of the religious, the most religious and, quote, educated leaders at that time. They didn't want their temple, their religion, and they made it a religion. They didn't want that taken from them. So anything that happened that would draw people away was a threat. It's so sad. But Jesus wasn't surprised. So back in Matthew um, 21, uh, you know, John's Gospel tells us the very next day was Palm Sunday, what we know as Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, which we, we just read. Matthew 21, uh, we've, we miss this sometimes. Uh, Jesus instructs his disciples about getting preparations for his entry into Jerusalem. 
we miss the miraculous nature, the foreknowledge that Jesus said, hey, you go into this next village, which was um, uh, Bethpage, you're going to find a donkey and a colt there, untie it, bring them to me if anyone asks you. And I believe it's Luke's gospel, Luke or Mark, someone, someone says, hey, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? And they say, oh, well, the Lord needs it. And they go, oh, okay. So they must have known about Jesus because word spread. You heal people, feed thousands of people, raise someone from the dead. God knows that word is going to spread all over the place, even if they don't have the internet and the 24-7 news cycle we have. So bring up the map of Bethpage and Bethany. Um, it's interesting. Bethpage was a small town near Bethany. I don't know if you can see that. If it's, yeah, yeah, it's labeled for you. Um, this is where they spent the night in, in Bethany. And Bethany, I'm sorry, uh, Bethpage is only mentioned once in Scripture. Bethany is where Martha and Lazarus and Mary lived. That's where Jesus, the, the scene we just read from John 12, that's where they were. Uh, the days before Passover and even the day before the night before Passover. So the next morning is when he goes in to Bethpage. Before they were about to go into the village, he says, go get a donkey. And so they take care of that. Now what we read in Matthew 21 this morning, they're going to make that journey walking, you know, riding on a donkey, Jesus was, but the, everyone else is walking, and you know the anticipation must have been building up. People were hearing, the king is coming. That's what, that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. So the Mount of Olives is there, and then you can't tell really between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, that's the Jerusalem, the city wall there, there's a valley. It's, it's the, uh, the Kidron Valley. It, it goes down pretty deep, and then it comes back up because Jerusalem is at a high elevation. So is the Mount of Olives. So you can't tell how far that goes down there, right here. Right there, that's the, that's the valley here. Right here, it goes down from Mount of, Mount of Olives, goes all the way down, then they had to come back up. So they came back up to Jerusalem. That's so many places in Scripture. It says Jesus and the disciples were going up to Jerusalem. Pastor Landon taught on that a few weeks ago. So now when they drew near Jerusalem, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the religious leaders were going to arrest him and what was going to happen. He would be condemned. He would be mocked and spit on and tortured. He would be delivered over the Romans for execution. Um, yet he had the courage not only to enter Jerusalem, but in as public a way as you can imagine, riding on a donkey. And by the way, well, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. There's the uh, Mount of Olives here. And then you can see a little bit better. That's a road down there in, in the bottom of the valley. Then it comes back up. And right in the corner, you can see the wall of Jerusalem. That would be the eastern corner, I believe. So you can see where they went. But they, they came from Bethpage, from Bethany, then Bethpage to get the donkeys, then up to the Mount of Olives, then down the Kidron Valley, and then to Jerusalem and entered the city with everybody shouting and all this going on. So um, prior to this, I mentioned earlier, he deliberately said, do not tell anyone who I am, but now was the time. He knew, now was the time. He knew it was going to happen. The disciples were kind of going with the flow. And by this time in Jesus' ministry now, especially with this mass, this crowd gathered and just flowing, kind of like a victory parade going into the city, a lot of people are believing this is the king. He has come to redeem us. So they're excited, this massive crowd. And the disciples, basically their role... One of their roles here is crowd control. 
Because even when Jesus was walking, sometimes the crowd would press around him and they were just trying to get through on a path. Here they're on a road, he's up on a donkey, but the crowds are still coming against him. Um, so they drew near, they're about to enter the city. Um, the secrecy is now lifted in Jesus' ministry, who he is. He's no longer telling people, don't let anyone know I'm the Messiah. Um, so now there's this enthusiasm, and it's a very dramatic moment. We don't know how long that journey was. Depending on the crowd and how uh, crowded the roads were, we don't know how long it actually took to get into the city. By the way, this picture, by the way, I couldn't find a good one on the internet. They didn't have good cameras back then. So... Um, this is just an example. There's so many cheesy pictures of this because, you know, there is nothing. It's just what we imagine from the scriptures. But there were crowds like this, and here's Jesus is approaching. So the crowds were on the road. They're getting ready to lay down palm branches and their coats on the road. But that gives you just an idea of they're preparing the road for royalty. So he says, go in. And they had all these religious expectations as the king came in. Go into the village, you'll find a donkey with a colt. Now this is back in Bethany. I'm sorry, Beth Page. Um, it's interesting, Jesus would ride the younger of these animals. A couple different gospels. Uh, they only, one of them mentions both animals, and I think that's Matthew. The other one mentions just one, but they had two. Jesus said, go and tie the donkey and the colt with her, or the, the colt and the foal. Um, so that's his word of knowledge. The Hebrew text of Zechariah 9 mentions one animal, not two. Jesus wrote on the colt, not its mother. Mark and Luke say the animal was so young it had never been ridden. It had never been broken in. So you think about this from just a logical, practical standpoint. It had never been broken in. And how was that with Jesus getting on it? Is that why they brought the mother along? The, do the mother donkey. So the full, the young colt would be calm, or did the colt just, Jesus got on and the colt said, okay, I'm giving God a ride here, so I'm going to behave, you know what I mean? Despite the noise and the Hosanna and the crowd, um, all this was done, verse 4, Matthew 21, 4, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. Instead of coming into Jerusalem on a, on a horse, which is uh, a military uh, leader or a warrior might do, triumphant on a horse, he came in on a donkey as the prince of peace. And they wanted to kill him, the religious leaders. And the crowd turned on him five days later. Now, one commentator said this, the entry into Jerusalem was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur, uh, a triumph of poverty over affluence and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. I like that. So now verses 7 through 11, when they were laying their clothes on, on the donkey, on, on the road, and the palm branches, Jesus receives, not only receives the, the praise and adoration, he encourages it. And as we mentioned, that is the very first time he did that. Um, so this act in their time of putting coats on the road or palm branches, spreading them on the road when someone comes riding in, was one of worship, adoration, in this case, recognition of Jesus' royalty and a promise of support, which is very interesting. Um, well, we better get used to this kind of worship in heaven because we're going to be worshiping. You understand that's one of the things, one of the main things we'll be doing in his presence. 
The joy of the Lord. It'll be astounding in heaven. It'll be loud. Bring your earplugs. I'm kidding. Yeah, I wonder about that. It's going to be so loud. If you read about the descriptions in Revelation, about it sounding like great multitudes and roaring waters, kind of like Niagara Falls on steroids and thunder. That's what our worship will sound like in heaven. If you think about that, what are our eardrums? Are they going to be different, you know, in our glorified bodies? I know, I'm, I think about the weird things sometimes. Um, but uh, Revelation 7, verse 9, just listen to this. Understand the picture of, of Jesus coming in, and now understand we're all glorified with him in his presence. Uh, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, verse 9. So, if, let me ask you a question. If Jesus were in this room, would you worship differently? Every church does it differently. Some do it with a guitar. Some do it with just a cappella, just a voice. Some do it with piano. Some do it with a big band. Some people, uh, big churches, I like, like to say they do it with an orchestra. <laughs> do you need an orchestra to worship God? I don't think so. But um, we are sure passionate about our sports teams, aren't we? Mmm, ooh, that hits close to home, doesn't it? And it ain't even football season. And I'm ruffling some feathers here. This is a picture of one of the victory parades. I was looking up NFL victory parades. See, like the, the donkeys would be like the car. Uh, Jesus would be on the car. The disciples maybe would be there with his closest disciples would be, be, be like the cars. See all the people pressing around him. And they're worshiping, aren't they? Come on. I know it's idolatry, but they're worshiping, aren't they? So do we worship things of this world more than we worship the king of kings? Don't put your hand up. Don't embarrass yourself. I've done it too. I've done it too. I had to repent of that. In fact, I'll tell you that story one day about five, six years ago. I had to repent of that. My idolatry when it, comes to, when it came to um, sports, sports teams and winning and losing things that are not significant eternally. Okay, so we're back. Charles Spurgeon, there's a quote here I have from him. He said, uh, this age does not generally sin in the direction of being too excited concerning divine things. We have erred so long on the other side that perhaps a little excess in the direction of fervor might not, might not be the worst of all calamities. Isn't that an understatement? Oh, I love Spurgeon. Okay, so now there's shouts of Hosanna, the son of David. Um, this was open, messianic adoration of Jesus. They, they longed, the people longed for deliverance and salvation. Hosanna, by the way, means save now. Save us now, Hosanna. Um, it was addressed to kings, uh, like in 2 Samuel, 2 Kings. So they openly give Jesus the title, son of David. The messianic title from the line of David, the descendant of David. Um, he comes in the name of the Lord to fulfill Daniel's prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy, and more. So Hosanna transliterates the Hebrew expression that was originally a cry for help. Save! Uh, in time, it became an invocation of blessing and even an acclamation. So complete fulfillment of these scriptures, complete Jesus' reign and rule, will take place when Christ returns again to judge um, these words were quoted from a prophetic triumphant psalm, by the way. I'll, I, you don't have to turn there, but mark down Psalm 118, 
25 through 27. It says, The stone which the builders rejected, Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That gives you a little different perspective on that verse, doesn't it? We're talking about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Son of David, save, Hosanna. This is the day the king comes to redeem and to save. This is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I, o Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from, house, from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. And then this, this doesn't seem like it should be included in this prophetic psalm. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Talking about Jesus. There's some perspective for you, right? Oh, the celebration, he's coming in. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now bind him and send him to the cross. When a king comes, something magnificent is typically expected. But all this rejoicing was over one who would be bound and sacrificed. It had to be done this way. God had planned this out, foreordained, from the beginning, from eternity. And there could be no kingdom, <clears throat> excuse me, there could be no kingdom until the work of the cross was accomplished. And it was accomplished. It is and was finished. So, verse 10, when he'd come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Another translation says, everybody was stirred in the commotion. Don't forget that Jesus knew that they were plotting to kill him, yet he came openly. Interesting little nugget here from Matthew 2.3. Don't turn there. Remember the Matthew 2.3, when the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews, all Jerusalem was troubled, it says. When the Magi was looking for this king of the Jews, all Jerusalem was troubled. Now, when Jesus arrives, all of the Jerusalem is stirred or moved. Many who were stirred would five day, days later change their hosannas to away with him, crucify him. How fickle is the mob. Now, recall in Luke 19, you can mark this down too if you're taking notes, Luke 19, 41 through 44, because... Um, Right before Jesus entered Jerusalem, in Luke's account, he looked over the city and wept, knowing that they were not going to repent and receive him, knowing that judgment was coming. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation, as Jesus put it. Just like the world in America today, some people are stirred with joy and anticipation at the thought of Jesus' return and future kingdom. That would be this fellowship we are stirred with joy, thankfulness, anticipation. When is that, that coming? We're looking forward to that, his arrival, right? But others respond to this thought, this idea of his return with laughter, mockery, envy, indignation. Um, but one cannot be neutral about the approach of the kingdom and the person of Jesus Christ. So, verse 11, it says, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. It would sound strange to a lot of people. 
especially to those who were religious and, quote, educated, um, that a prophet would come from the obscure city of Nazareth, right? Uh, but born in Bethlehem, city of David, in and out of Egypt. Remember, he was called out of Egypt. Joseph was called out of Egypt. He would be called a Nazarene. Go to the next slide, and there's the, the, are these symbols, I believe. I hope, yeah, there it is. This is what it means to be a Nazarene. That's the symbol for Nazarene. Uh, the one on the left, it says, Iraqi Christians' homes are marked with this Arabic letter, which stands for Nazarene. And um, people like Voice of the Martyrs and other organizations that try to raise awareness about the persecution of Christians, they put this right one up, and they, we, you can get it on a t-shirt. I'm a Nazarene. That means I identify with Jesus Christ and follow him. Nazarene. So he will be called a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. So he cleanses the temple now in verse 12 and 13. He drove out all those who were bought and sold. We don't know how much time elapsed from getting, finally getting into the temple after all the praise, all the crowds, all the commotion. So now he's in the temple. John's gospel mentions what some scholars believe to be a second cleansing. So there's not just, not only, Jesus did not just one time go into the temple and cleanse it and do this, clear out those who were uh, changing money and, and charging all these high prices. He, he apparently did it twice. John records it in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, starting in verse 13, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He went into the temple and uh, uh, he, it mentioned him making a whip out of cords. Think about this, the Prince of Peace, right? He makes a whip, and he's driving out those who are buying and selling. That's what John describes early in Jesus' ministry. So that apparently is a separate time where Jesus went in with the same righteous anger and said, get these out of my God, my God's house. Get these out of my house. Um, the purpose was the same, to drive out the merchants who, in, in cooperation with the priests and the leaders there, they cheated visitors and pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. They cheated them. They wanted to make as much money as possible off of them by forcing them to purchase animals approved for sacrifice, jacking up the prices. The exchange rates on the currencies they were jacked up because people didn't have any choice. They couldn't go outside to Bethany or other places. They were in Jerusalem, and they had to pay the prices, so they jacked them up. I can give you an example of how I've experienced this. When I was living in California, I traveled around to some major cities for a, a company, Roland Corporation, and I was doing trade shows. And there are a couple cities, man, San Francisco um, and not Atlanta, Chicago. They are the worst. A bottle of water would be like $6. Parking in the parking garages surrounding the convention center was either $20 or $24 a day. I couldn't believe, but, what, but you couldn't do anything. I mean, you're not going to go across to Indiana and park. You've got to be in Chicago, right? Or you're not going to go to Milwaukee. So this is what the people coming into Jerusalem to do their sacrifices and to celebrate Passover, they had no choice. So the religious leaders allowed this to take place where those who had the animals for sacrificing the the. The, the doves and uh, the, the cows or whatever, they were jacking up those prices. And then the exchange rates, because I guess they only were able to use one set of currency there, because otherwise it would be a, a, a nightmare. But 
Jesus was really angry about this. He said, you're taking advantage of these poor people. So I read one, one uh, commentator said, a, a pair of doves could cost nearly 20 times more than the average price you would get anywhere else when you came in for Passover in Jerusalem. No wonder Jesus was upset. Um, and then the, the traffic, you know, in the temple, that was necessary. It may have been innocent, but the trading and marketing spirit soon develops abuses, and we know that is the love of money. Money itself is not evil, because you can use it for good things, right? The gospel is spread around the world with money, but it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. So Jesus did what um, it seemed to be an acted-out parable here uh, when he drove them from the temple. He knew there would be no lasting change or reformation in the temple. He did this to, to, as using it as a teaching moment and to make a point. So it was an important thing that, that he showed them. Now, um, one commentator said there's no doubt that the tables for the money changes were back and all the animals were back in the temple the next week. And Jesus took no further action from what we know. So he, he cleansed the temple once in, early in the Gospel of John and here in Matthew. And uh, one of the things he said is, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Uh, now here's the, the setup. I, sh I should have found a picture of the, the temple at that time. The merchants operated in the outer courts of the temple. The only area where the Gentiles could come in and pray, right? So this place of prayer was made into a, a flea market, a marketplace, and a dishonest one at that. So Mark's gospel account contains the fact that Jesus used the opportunity to teach this. And Jeremiah 7, 11 is, is where he brought this scripture out. It says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? So Jeremiah and Isaiah both prophesied. Jesus demanded the temple be a place for all to pray, um, but business was being transacted, right? Instead of the Gentiles being able to get in there and actually pray and worship God, they couldn't do what the temple was for in the first place. So Isaiah 56, 7 states, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, Jesus quoted this, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The temple was where Jehovah had set his name, but it had become defiled, clearly defiled. Uh, Jesus combined both of these Old Testament verses in his remarks we just read in uh, Matthew 21, 13. Verse 14, now here's another, another transition. We don't know how long he was in there. How long do you think? Think of these massive crowds and how many tables and people doing their business and all the sacrificial animals tied up or penned up and all the people coming in from different parts of the area. How long did it take him to clear the temple of not only all the, the money changers and them and knock over the tables and get them out of there but all the animals too it says so he cleared the temple we don't know how long could have been a couple hours we don't know but we do know he was open to ministry and that's a good example for us be open to what god might have you do to bless someone else um, i think it was dietrich bonhoeffer said always be ready to allow yourself to be interrupted by god hmm yeah, 
That means there's people around us. Everybody needs something. There's always someone with needs. Believers and unbelievers, be ready for those divine appointments and conversations. But so he drove out the merchants and money chambers, uh, changers, and people came to him. The needy were still coming to him. So those who were suffering sought him out, and he healed them. It says in verse 14, the blind and the lame. It doesn't say how many people. It doesn't say how long he was there. I mean, even if you read uh, earlier in his ministry when um, John the Baptist was beheaded, that's his cousin. And he paved the way, prepared the way for Jesus. He was beheaded immediately after. There was no time to grief. It said, they were, I think they were about to get, get in the boat and go to another place. He landed and saw all these people like sheep without a shepherd. And it says, Jesus had compassion on them. His cousin was just beheaded. And Jesus had compassion on all these people coming to him. Wow. What an example of just pouring yourself out to be available for ministry. So the blind and the lame, interesting, they were restricted to the outer court of the Gentiles in the temple, which was all crowded with the money changers and everything. So they, they couldn't get closer to the altar or to sacrifice. But to Jesus, one thing to note here, they were not outcasts to him. So verses 15 through 17, here we go. We're going to expose the indignation of the Jewish leaders, thanks to Matthew and the others who, who wrote this. Um, the chief priests and the scribes, listen to this, saw the wonderful things that he did. <clears throat> Remember, they knew he healed Lazarus from the dead. He saw, he's here, he's healing the blind, giving sight to the physically blind in the temple. And healing the lame. These religious leaders saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children, they were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. What's their response? They were indignant. Whew. This is their response to the miracles of God. God in the flesh, as we know. Then there's the children praising. First, notice, notice they were in the temple. Kudos to those parents who brought your children in the temple to worship or to sacrifice or to be part of the Passover. Um, then see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Greed and theft in the temple did not bother them, but praising Jesus did. Wow. No wonder. And we have some of that today. I would venture to say a lot of that hypocrisy within the church, a lot of churches. Um, that's for another day. So <laughs> the irony is that, that children and common people acknowledged Jesus for who he was. And they were despised and and. Um, looked down upon by the religious and the educated, the religious leaders. So just like this world, the more we glorify Jesus Christ, the more it rubs the world the wrong way, doesn't it? And it's getting more intense out there. We have to remember, it's a spiritual battle first. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But the warfare in our culture, in America, a quote, Christian nation, <laughs> It's getting intense. Be ready. Be ready. Um, 
So they asked him, this is interesting how he responded, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus' answer was clear, yes. And, you know, he goes, um, what, what, how did he respond here? Um, he, he had heard what these are saying, and it was perfected praise in the ears of God. Psalm 8, 2 is what Jesus responded with. Psalm 8, verse 2, you have ordained strength. Another translation says, you have perfected praise. Have you never read, Jesus says. Interesting that he talks, now that, that's like, can you imagine this? These are the most educated and religious. They've studied the scripture. They know all the answers, right? Jesus says, have you never read the scriptures where it says, right? It's like going to a college campus, giving a, um, a lecture in all the, a big uh, auditorium and all the, the university professors there are there giving a lecture and on something, maybe history, maybe a historical thing. And all of a sudden they get upset and me saying, well, have you never read in, in this book that you studied in your general <laughs> studies to get your degree? It's very insulting. Um, so it's interesting. But they were indignant. And uh, this was, by the way, when Jesus responded with Psalm 8-2, it was a clear um, message of his deity, an assertion of his deity. He wasn't backing down. Um, Luke 19:39 and 40, I have it up there. It says, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, this wasn't the children. This was another, at another time there at some point where they were, talking to, they were mentioning his disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And you get a picture of God, Jesus being the God of nature. If people were shut up, creation would cry out. So after this, he left them, went out, back out. So I'm, you're guessing maybe it was nighttime now. Um, went back to Bethany. Remember that map we showed? Back out to Bethany. Perhaps he stayed there. It says he lodged there with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that for sure, but we can make that leap. Um, some suggest he stayed there. At the time of Passover now, thousands and thousands of people, pilgrims, people coming from all over were crowded into Jerusalem. They came from the surrounding villages. So in the city, there, obviously they ran out of places for people to stay. Interesting, kind of like when Jesus was born, huh, in Bethlehem. There was not any room. Uh, but Bethany was close by. Now let's talk about another transition here. The fig tree. A fig tree was a well-known symbol of Israel. And on most fig trees, the fruit appears and then the leaf. The fruit appears first, then the leaf. So when Jesus came to Israel, think about this, there were leaves, an appearance of religion, but no fruit for God. The leaves were there, and I think that's part of his teaching here, what, we're gonna, what we read in uh, Matthew 21. So a barren fig tree often symbolized divine judgment on Israel because of spiritual fruitlessness. Ouch. I think they knew. We have a harder time grasping this and understanding this and what things meant uh, to them, but we can probably believe that they knew, the leaders knew, and the people might have known also um, verse 18 and 19, Jesus finds no fruit on the tree. Just It wasn't like this. In other words, remove the figs, 
Some of them are more ripe than others, obviously. But remove the figs, and, and I think I understand if you take the, the figs off, they'll ripen more. So figs are one of the fruits that does that. So take that off and just, it was just the leaves, is what Jesus saw when he came to this fig tree. And apparently he was, he was God-man, right? God-man. So he did hunger. He did have the same things that we, we need hunger, uh, water, and he needed to eat. So he was hungry. Found no fruit, and maybe he used it as an occasion to work a miracle, which we're about to talk about, which we already read, actually. Um, he cursed the fig tree, made it wither. You go, wow, come on, Jesus, that was a little fig tree. When I first read that, I, was, I couldn't under, really understand. Why were you, were you upset at that fig tree? You could have went like that. You could have bloomed a bunch of figs and, and fed all the disciples. But he cursed it. Did he not have his coffee that morning? I mean, I don't know. No, but that's not what he did. He knew exactly what he wanted to use that as another teaching moment. So um, let, let no fruit grow on you ever again. In a dramatic way, Jesus performed one of his very few destructive miracles. He made, he, his curse made the fig tree wither. Now, the other miracle he did when he sent all those demons into that um, crowd of uh, the uh, herd of pigs and they rushed down the, the steep bank into the water and drowned. That was another destructive miracle. But in this miracle at the fig tree and that casting out those demons and sending them into the pigs, notice that both, the only two, there may be one or two more, but I think those are the only two I can remember. Destructive miracles, we could call them, because it's still a miracle. They were not directed toward an individual or toward people. The fig tree and the demons into the pigs. So he found nothing on it but leaves. And in a way, the tree, it was a, without these figs, it's a picture of false advertising. And that's his point. The religious leaders were not bearing fruit. False advertising. They were giving the people, uh, they were deceiving the people, actually. So he acted out the parable. Cursed the fig tree. It withered. Um, it has an, this I, I sense of judgment coming upon unfruitful Israel. John 15 uh, says, I am the vine, my father's the vine dresser. And he says, you cannot bear fruit unless you are in me. Jesus said, no branch can bear fruit unless it is in me. So this is our take home from, from this particular point on the fig tree. We need to abide in the vine. He is the vine, we are the branches, and we are to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Fruit that will last for eternity, spiritual fruit, but also good deeds, but fruit that will last, sharing the gospel. And later on, John 15, about halfway through, I believe it says, I have chosen you and appointed you, disciples, followers, believers, I have appointed you, chosen you, to go and bear fruit. So now back to the fig tree. The story is clear and simple, and its point is obvious. What counts is not promise, but performance. Matthew Henry said, a false and hypocritical profession commonly withers in this world. The fig tree that had no fruit lost its leaves. Hypocrites may look plausible for a time, but their profession will soon come to nothing. Verse 20 through 22, they, said, they responded, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? 
Now, there are different gospel accounts on this, whether they saw it right there or whether they went away and came by the fig tree, that same fig tree again. They go, wow, how did that happen? So either way, we know that it withered because of Jesus' rebuke. And um, if you have faith and don't doubt, that's his response. He encouraged his disciples to have this kind of faith, trusting that God will hear you if you're abiding in the vine. He hears us. Have faith. In fact, let me go and, and just... Um, Verse um, 21, Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree. Now this is figuratively, okay? But even if you say to this mountain, again, a figurative concept or idea about faith, not about literally removing a mountain, be taken up and be cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So let's talk about that for a minute because some people take this out of context and say, hey, I can get whatever I want. So God's a little genie in a lamp now, right? Hey, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, whatever. Jesus, I believe, I receive, come on now. New job, new car, I'm visualizing a retirement fund and whatever else in this world that you, you know, you want all these good things, health and wealth and prosperity and nothing that is promised to us in the scriptures. What's promised? If they hated me, they will hate you too, Jesus said. That's promised. We don't like to remember those promises. But Jesus explained that this miracle was the result of a prayer made in faith, and he then encouraged them to believe. Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, he said, the promise of God's answer to the prayer of faith was made, this is interesting, now note this, not that it doesn't work, faith doesn't work for us, but this specific promise was spoken or made to the disciples who were with him at that time, not to the masses, not to the multitude. That's interesting why the disciples were abiding in the vine. They were with him. They were believers. They were following his ministry and, and bearing some fruit. And they would bear a lot more in the weeks and years to come. Um, abiding in him, bearing fruit, that's a promise. So from John 15, right John 15 down, it goes along with the vine and the branches. And just go through that. It's really encouraging about how he says, apart from me, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. Apart from Jesus. But God willing, every one of you in this room is a believer in Christ. So that's, a, that's to you. You are not apart from him. He will never leave you or nor forsake you. You are with him. He is with you. So you are not apart from him. But he made that point to any of those who would be reading or listening at that time. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we can only believe for a thing when we are in such union with God, abiding in him, that his thoughts and his purposes lead us. This is not to be understood as an assurance that God will grant our every request or whatever we ask. To pray with faith is to believe in accordance with the revealed will of God. In other words, your will be done. If you are sincerely walking with God, abiding in him, and if you're right with him, no unconfessed sin in your life, and you were just following him the best of your ability, then you can say, God, your will be done. 
And then when you pray and you ask for something, because in that state, he changes your desires. He changes what you want, yes, even in this temporary world. When you're walking with him and seeking first his kingdom, he changes, he conforms you to his image and likeness. He changes your desires. There's a Psalm 37.4, I believe it says, um, delight yourself in the Lord and God will give you the desires of your heart. You know that's another verse that's ripped out of its context and just says, hey, what does your heart desire in this world? That's, no, 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 no. If you are truly delighting in him, seeking him, following him, and I'm not talking about a bunch of works. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ and abiding in him and in his word. Then you can sincerely pray, and I, I pray this for certain people. When I'm praying with them, I say, God, give my brother or my sister here the desires of his or her heart. If I know they are, to, to my knowledge and understanding, knowing their relationship, seeing their fruit in their lives, I pray that God gives them the desire because they want what he wants. So when we want what he wants, every one of you, if you want what God wants, his will, may God give you the desires of your heart. Because our heart is for people to be saved before it's too late. Our heart is that they would believe the gospel. Our heart is that we would be salt and light in this culture and country and making a difference for his kingdom, not for our own personal gain or for, for man's agenda, right? So the delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. That was a little, that was free. <laughs> that was a separate little message. But now let's just get to the takeaways from today's study. Um, I think I have them here. The cross has to come before the kingdom. And it had to. The cross had to come. Jesus fulfilled prophecy and obeyed the Father's will. Now we won't fulfill prophecy necessarily, but we can obey the Father's will because we have his will. We have the will of God, and we know the word of God, so we can obey it, and we can do it, and say, God, may your will be done in me. So the cross had to come before the kingdom. Jesus demonstrated his authority, foreknowledge, and even compassion, knowing that he was about to be crucified. Still compassionate, healing, healing the blind and the lame in the temple. When Christ is most honored, and even in America today, when Christians you know, lift him up and point to him, when Christ is most honored, his enemies are most displeased. When the people, the children, sing, How's Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hey, Jesus, shut them up. They are most displeased when Christ is worshipped. Greed and theft in the temple didn't bother the religious leaders, but praising Jesus did. And that bothers people today when we're out in this culture, the godless culture that we are a part of here, that we're blessed to be a part of, by the way. We were born for such a time as this, you and I. We are here to reach people in your sphere of influence, in our sphere of influence, in Kakana, in, in Green Bay, the Valley, Wisconsin, USA. And if you're from another country, then wherever you're going back to, you were born for such a time as this to reach people and praise Jesus, to lift him up, point people to him. So encouraging children to know and worship Jesus, encourage them because your children and our young people today, they're watching our lives. They're watching your life. 
So that's, I'm thinking about the children in the temple. That's one takeaway here too. So what counts is promise, not, I'm sorry, what counts is not promise, like the religious leaders, just the leaves on the fig tree. What counts is not promise, but performance. Not false advertising, but the real thing. Bearing fruit for the kingdom. How do we do that? Abide in him every day. Believe, pray in faith according to the will and the purposes of God every day. Good stuff, huh? Wow. And we got through it. I didn't know that we'd get all through the 22 verses, so we'll pick it up next week. Um, Let's just thank the Lord. And uh, Father, we uh, love you. We know that your word is true. And we talked about a lot today, and we ask that uh, you would work in our hearts and, and, and allow us to receive what you want us to receive and to remember from your word today. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, your living word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that we are not left guessing. We thank you that these things were written down about what happened to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the things that he taught. We praise you, Lord, for the simplicity of fig trees and bearing fruit and uh, just what Hosanna really means. Lord, save. Thank you, God, for saving us, for redeeming us, for setting us free. And thank you for the hope that we have, the hope that is an anchor to our soul. I pray for each person here today. Lift them up to you and ask your touch on their lives and on their hearts that you would move in them today, that your will would be done in their lives and that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Jesus. We praise you and thank you for this time, for this this day. In Jesus' name, amen.